I wanna see trans people living. I don't want us to die. But for my humanity, I will stand and fight. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change must come. This Trans Day of Remembrance weekend was one not just of remembrance, but also of resistance and trans joy, and not just at the vigils, but also on a hockey rink and in a wrestling ring. Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is a special Thanksgiving edition of the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And there won't be too much other stuff because we have a special guest and we want to get into it. But first, congratulations are in order. First, the team trans hockey. After two years away from the ice, they brought an armada to Madison, Wisconsin. Over 40 players among three teams. They played six games against select squads for Madison Gay Hockey Association. And team trans swept the board, winning all six. Congratulations. Also, congrats are in order for the notorious angel, Amber Joe, the British wrestling star in the making, won her Wrestling Immortal debut over the weekend in a tag team victory. And congratulations to the Washington Spirit, the NWSL's champions, as they beat the Chicago Red Stars 2-1. Among the members of the champion team is Japanese midfielder Kumi Yokoyama. Yokoyama came out as transgender during the season back in June. At the start of these playoffs, Yokoyama proposed to their girlfriend, and she accepted. So now, Yokoyama has a fiancé and a championship ring. Not a bad way to end a season. But now, to our guest this week. And this guest has done a lot of things, and they just turned 30. Raquel Willis has been a standout activist, a titan in the trans community. As an activist, a spokesperson, a voice for change, and a voice for liberation. From their time to the Transgender Law Center, to their most recent stint as communications director for the Ms. Foundation, and in between, remember that stalwart voice at the Women's March in Washington, D.C. just four years ago? And, of course, last summer, as one of the prime movers behind the massive trans rights demonstration that was in Brooklyn, the place that she now calls home. And the Transporter Room is pleased and proud to have Raquel Willis on our forum right now. Beaming up from Brooklyn, Raquel Willis, energized. Yes, thank you for having me, Carly. It's good to be on. It's good to have you here. As I said, like in the green room before we got going, yes, I'm fangirling a little bit. This one, this one is special. Right out of the gate. Once again, first reaction, 47 dead this year, deadliest, deadliest on record again. This is starting to become a very distressing habit. What's your first reaction when you hear this? And we're at this point of another year end. And once again, it seems like 
this toll gets longer and longer every year. Yeah, I mean, it's always devastating. Um, I feel like I cycle through different feelings. You know, sometimes when Tidor hits me, it is a cry fest and, you know, just so many sad emotions. And then other times there's a feeling of numbness. Just you, you're kind of depleted. You kind of have nothing left. Uh, to feel. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. I, I do think, you know, the numbers are always um, devastating, of course. And we know that this dynamic has existed for a long time. So I think for me, as some as a student of history, it's understanding that there's so many unnamed folks that we've lost this year, but of course in previous years that we just don't even know. Um, so I try to like keep the numbers in context that unfortunately there are countless others. I can just say for me, it there's a level of fear. I'm afraid of being number 48 or 49 or 50 or number one next year or any number the next year. But then you, you consider th places like Brazil, where the number is three times as high, and so many of and so many of our lost have no name. Mm -hmm. And is that where do where do you find solace in this? How do we heal? How can we cope? How can we heal? Yeah, I mean, solace I think comes from community. It comes from surrounding yourself with people who uh, affirm and respect the essence of who you are. That doesn't mean yes people. That doesn't mean people who kind of don't hold you accountable because I think sometimes that's how people hear that. But I just know at this point in my life, I can't have anybody in my life who <laughs> doesn't understand transness or understand my womanhood or at least is not receptive to understanding more about the complexity of gender and identity. I just can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it anymore. Um, so I, I think that is important. I think also um, reading the words and work of other trans people, you know, oftentimes we have to curate what we consume. And a lot of times we can't trust the media apparatus as it stands to, at least in a mainstream sense, to reflect an accurate, authentic story of, of the trans experience. And so that means we got to seek out and support trans creators, trans journalists like yourself, and so many more who are trying to share and actually sharing um, authentic and powerful nuances of our stories. As you make the rounds in media, print media, especially the broadcast media, because I've seen you enough on GMA to wonder if you and Robin Roberts are co-hosting the show now. What does mainstream journalism still get wrong in your view 
about trans people? I am often aggravated by the fact that we're often just seen as a subject, if you want to think in the in the uh, print sense, or as the talents, oftentimes, and um, and more of like a video or even audio production sense. There's there's continues to be a a an, uh, obsession with dissecting us as if we're not human beings. Um, and I actually think that the best work that comes out is the work that actually has trans people both in front of and behind the camera or or the mic, right? So I, I, I think actually having us in the room, I, I was approached about some, some documentary last week. And I was like, okay, well, how many trans people do you have on your production crew? And they're like, oh, well, we have a we have a cis gay man who's like a part of the team. And I'm like, that means absolutely nothing to me. Like, yes, that's my brother in a sense, but he is having a completely different experience as a cis gay man than I am as a trans woman, queer trans woman under the same umbrella. And if y'all don't even understand that, then I don't need to be a part of this because you, cause you got some more homework you need to do. So I, I think having us involved in more of the production side of things will help us have those narratives that we really need to see. Now, I'm reminded of a group of people that were, in a sense, at least in the corporation where it happened, but not the room where it happened the recent lit Netflix controversy mm-hmm. where one trans person suspended another trans person was, the, was terminated from their job. All meanwhile, it looks like Dave Chappelle has rode the cancel train to even, to even more notoriety and possibly another contract somewhere else. What do you think from an activist activist standpoint, what should the trans community as a whole take from that entire episode as the learning experience to move forward. What should the trans community take from that? I mean, I, I think again, it's, it's about us trusting ourselves more to tell our stories than these larger media corporations that often don't have our best uh, interests at, at heart and at hand. I, you know, I, I think the thing about journalism and media that we don't talk about enough is that for all of the discussion around objectivity and how important it is to give both sides You know, I think that that is a very um, ridiculous claim because we don't need both sides of everything. I I don't need to know what the white supremacists are thinking in, in the same, 
and held in the same regard as what actually black people and people of color are thinking. Just like, I don't need to see the elevation of turfs and transphobes, people who have made entire careers off of that elevated with the same regard as like the actual authentic narratives of trans people. I think that that is sinister and and a dangerous false equivalence. Um, and I, I I think with this Netflix situation, again, I guess going back to these invisible values that exist in media and journalism, you can say that you want to be objective all you want, or that this is about fairness and balance. You know, like another trusted source, Fox News. But <laughs> but the truth is, is that you can't be fair and balanced um, with, and assume that you're not you're not coming from a particular lens. We live in a white supremacist society. We live in a cis heteronormative society, a cis sexist society, an overwhelmingly transphobic society, misogynoristic society, a capitalist society, you know, so a fat phobic society, a disa- like uh, um, an ableist, ableist society. society. So it is nonsensical for anyone to act as if you could report anything completely neutral and actually be be being fair to marginalized folks because it's not going to happen. People just need to be upfront and transparent about where they're coming from. That's the only way. I'm in total agreement. You got to know where you're at because they taught me all through, all through J school. And one thing we both went through J schools. So we know all the textbook stuff and all the, the style book things that we were taught and all the quote unquote ethics we were taught. Mm-hmm. But this whole both sides thing to me is for, I think if there's two sides, you you got the two sides misidentified. You're either, for example, you're the four human rights, you aren't. And that's yeah. the thing that gets me is the, is people who are openly not for any type of human rights, especially when it comes to trans people, they get, that's the thing that irked me the most about Dave Chappelle is that Dave Chappelle's take on trans life gets more got more credence than mine or yours or a lot of other trans folks who live it day to day to day to day. Another thing with journalism, one place where I really think journalism has dropped the ball is the, is the legislative situation. How in the world do two of the largest states in our union pass discriminatory bills against trans youth especially? And none of that gets no national play in the national media. When you look at that, how much anger comes out? I, a lot. And I, I, I think it's particularly frustrating when folks act as if everything that trans people needed was won when marriage equality <laughs> you know, became, I guess, protected in the United States. Um, Again, I mean, that is the result of 
decades of our erasure, right? And so that so that actually means that like the ways that the cis gay elite kind of crowded out the fact that there were other folks within the community and that that whatever was their concern, they kind of were able to to allow the agenda to be set. That means that there's also blood on their hands too. I think that we often um, ignore that there has been a concerted effort, both in, internally under the LGBTQ plus umbrella and also externally and, and continues to be to silence the needs, the concerns of the trans community and particularly trans people of color. And so, of course, we live in 2021 where we're still having these one-on-one conversations about gender identity, things that many cis gay people only started to understand in the last 10 years along with cis straight people, (laughs) right? They're not off the hook. They think they are, but they're not off the hook. And it, it may... Unfortunately, it makes a lot of sense why the trans community, you know, we're still seeing high rates of violence. We're still seeing high rates of discrimination on many fronts. And of course, we're seeing this legis- these legislative attacks. I mean, they're, they're in many ways rehashed attacks that, you know, were targeting largely, I guess, cis gay people previously, or even rehashed attacks against equality on like this kind of basic cis woman feminist tip from decades ago. But even all of that was the result of previous attacks on people who were gender nonconforming. I mean, at one point, it was all kind of swirled around, right? The women who dared to wear, the cis women who dared to wear pants and dared to see themselves as being able to be financially independent. You know, the overwhelmingly the queer people who were uh, disenfranchised and policed were the ones who were some kind of gender nonconforming along with the trans people. And so I, it, it's nonsensical to think that this has nothing to do with, that they have nothing to do with this as well. Rate one to 10. One means no way in hell. 10 means absolute certainty of truth. This statement, quote, okay. <laughs> black, Black trans and queer folks and black cisgender folks can find solidarity. On a scale of one to ten. On a scale of one to ten. One meaning no way in hell. No way in hell. Ten meaning this statement is 100% absolute certainty. It's Bible truth, practically. Okay, that we can find solidarity with black cis folks. Yes. I'm going to say... I want to say a cute seven. A seven. I think it's possible, but we have some absolute hurdles. Do I do I think that it is absolutely possible in this lifetime? Maybe, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I do know that 
we have so many hurdles and many of them are rooted in how white supremacy has ravaged our own communities, but has also ravaged our own concepts of what black power actually looks like. Sam, I got to, I figure it'd be a little bit lower than that. Me, me, I, I have it about a four. A lot of it, the I had the number to six, and then the Dave Chappelle thing happened, and it dropped, and it took a market drop, even from people who I consider friends and family. It took a it it took a one or two point drop. See the interesting thing, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and maybe because I have, you know, I now have a warped experience because I have a family that has come along for the journey. But I know a lot of that is rooted in a privilege, a privilege of education. They all have, I mean, they all have higher education degrees, you know, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it often does mean that there's more openness to new ideas. Um, you know, I think the class privilege for me coming from a middle class background, all those things, in addition to the fact that the trans person that they know is seen as successful. Right. So I'm not I understand fully that I'm in a unique position where it's like their regard for trans people is is skewed differently because of the experience that I've been blessed with. But I understand why you feel that way. Yeah, I absolutely understand why you feel that way. I mean, I've met some of the most considered progressive Black cis folks and been disappointed and continue to be disappointed by their lack of awareness and action. But I do have hope. I believe that we're going to turn a corner. I believe it's going to happen. There was a point where we did turn a corner, turn a significant corner. Sherman set the Wayback Machine for last June in Brooklyn when you had thousands of people saying Black trans lives matter, and the majority of them were very Black. A certain person who is quite familiar to both of us, Raquel Willis, said, I believe in Black trans power. What does that power look like? And where would you like to see cisgender, especially cis-het Black folks, standing in that moment? When I think about our collective power, I think about the fact that we are some of the greatest examples of transformation. How beautiful, and in, in some ways, I won't even say magical, but I think sacred and precious is it that we are able to craft ourselves and and our lives the way we always knew we deserve to have them crafted right i mean to completely eschew so many expectations is a superpower to me and that does not mean that it's easy obviously it's very difficult obviously many of our people lose their lives or have their lives taken along the way 
but there's a radical audacity there. There's a radical authenticity and radical vulnerability. I mean, I really think us as Black trans people, you know, it's so interesting that that comedians and other folks like to say that we're so sensitive because I, I think we're all like tough as nails. I mean, it is difficult to risk potentially losing your family, your livelihood, love, so many different things in the pursuit of true expression. And I think that that is something that should be and can be tapped into universally. I think that there are some lessons around liberation that people can glean from the Black trans experience. Um, Because we're, I mean, we're all shackled in some way around the expectations of society. Even you could find the most privileged, cis, straight, white man on Wall Street. And you better believe in some way he doesn't feel like he's enough. He doesn't feel like he's man enough or masculine enough or whatever. The fact that we we all we're already told we're we're not enough, right? So how dare we even ever get to a point of valuing ourselves? I think that there's some so much that even that person, especially that person, could learn from our experience. How do you answer to those who say you have to be black or trans and stop tweaking off our movement? Or as a certain DC would say, stop punching down on my people. Well, you know, the funny thing about Dave Chappelle is that, and again, I think, I think he actually is more aware of these dynamics than he lets on in his comedy, right? But I I think that what he does is he deploys kind of a basic approach to gather the most laughs and draw in the most people, even though it is, you know, bargain barrel fodder. (laughs) Um, You know, with Dave Chappelle, I mean, who are your people? You haven't actually said who your people are. You said that you are against white folks, not against in that way, right? But you, you say you're making light of white folks. But really, he tells us who his identity is. He is a privileged, rich, black male, straight, ostensibly cis celebrity. He, he gives all of that in, in his performance. But because we live in a society that elevates exploitation, capitalism, all of these different things, you can almost get away with anything if you got money and clout, unfortunately. You don't have to have morals. You don't have to care about people who are more marginalized than you. And we saw in the aftermath of that situation that you will continue to be rewarded. You will continue to be regarded in, in, in the highest of manner. 
and that and that also shows what is not um, a deal breaker for so many people. Transphobia is not a deal breaker for so many people. Misogyny, not a deal per- deal breaker. White supremacy for some people is is also not a deal breaker as we've seen politically. Wasn't a deal breaker on January 6th now, was it? Exactly. That, to me, or or be- in Kenosha. A quick note before we go to break, though, your thoughts on the Rittenhouse case, what that what that meant, what kind of signal it sent. And in a sense, what kind of signal does it send in the context of the discussion we're having in regards to trans people? You know, I didn't actually follow the case closely because I kind of had a feeling that it was going to be a disappointing outcome. I. It's hard for me to feel like this sends any new signal in in the course of American history. I think in a lot of ways, it's it's business as usual. You know, white supremacy continues to reign free. White tears continue to be one of the most powerful pieces of currency in the United States. It it continues to show that there are so many people, particularly Black people, that are considered disposable. And I see that completely in line with how trans people, particularly Black trans people, are regarded as well. And right now we're hearing the red alert noise, which means you know that time it is. It's that time of the show where got to give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, we'll have the backstory, how Raquel Willis got here and also ms willis can get down a little bit on Fortnite. don't believe me we'll have more on that when we come back i'm carly chardonnay webb this is the transporter room stay with us Welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and our special guest this week, the incomparable, the unbelievable, the powerful Raquel Willis. And I'm looking over your CV. And Essence Woke 100, Root 100, Emerging, Emerging Leader Award, Frederick Douglass 200. Glad Media Award for Outstanding Magazine Article. It's something we have in common. We were nomi- we were both nominated for Glad Awards last year. Oh wow! It, okay. I mean, that was my. I was part of a team here at out here at Outsports.com. Our series got nominated for an award as well. Yeah. And and for me, that was that that was a sense of pride. I mean, even more so seeing the names I was the names that I was next to, and it's like for me. In many ways, being somewhat, I don't, I don't know if you've transitioned for five years. You can't necessarily be baby trans anymore. Maybe kindergarten or trans, maybe. But for me, that <laughs> meant a lot. But I, I don't know what that makes me. Then that makes me a skeleton. <laughs> well, one thing you've crammed a lot in a you crammed a lot in just thirty years on Earth. But you came from a long way, born nine. Born in Augusta, GA. In a Augusta, no, Augusta Georgia. 
Yeah. And 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 going through it, what was it like growing up black, queer in the South before supposedly the world got woke? Right. Right. And by the way, to a family that was very devout, mm-hmm. church every week. Yeah. With a point on on, you know, faith without works is dead. Cause that was that was taught in the that was taught in the household back then. What was that like for you, just growing up with all those things and all those societal mores kind of bumping up against each other? It's so interesting to think about that because it wasn't that long ago, but I feel like it feels like. It was so long ago because the world has changed so much. Like, I often wonder if previous generations felt like this. Like, did folks who were, you know, our age, our ages in in the 90s feel like things had shifted? I guess maybe they did feel like things had shifted a lot since, like, the 60s and 70s. I mean, I can tell you. I can tell you because the year you were born, I was a freshman in college. Oh wow! So, <laughs> I mean, I had to grow. I had to largely like I had to hide minds, right? During that time, I this world now is unrecognized would be unrecognizable to me in 1990. Mm-hmm. Completely unrecognizable. But when I look at the first thing that looked at just going through. The going through different things and learning your life story, my first thing blew my mind is how did you survive? How did you cope? And where did you find your fight back? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I will say, even though there were all of these expectations, it, it wasn't, you know, I think we often have this kind of binary <laughs> quote experience of tragedy and difficulty and relative ease and the difficulties for me were mostly internal because I I was I felt like I was very self-aware I still feel very self-aware and yet I also knew that I didn't want to put any more of a target on my back. So I held a lot of things in. I think I was very repressed for a long time. Um, And I had loving parents. I mean, even both of my parents were very loving and like in my life. My dad, of course, was very much like a traditionally masculine dude. So that was where we brushed up. I mean, he never served any time in the military, but he felt like a drill sergeant who was constantly telling me how I needed to sound, how I needed to walk. And and I think eventually I got to a point of like feeling like, well, if you got to tell me how to do all these things or you're constantly correcting me. I, and I didn't say this to him, but in my head I was thinking, then maybe I'm not cut out for what you're expecting me to do. So it was difficult. I I really had to cultivate an inner voice and listening to that inner voice and at least feeling like I could 
find release and at least like owning my convictions, telling things to myself, affirming myself before I could do it externally. Um, and I was probably set between seven and nine having these feelings of like something is off gender wise. Like, I wish I had just been born a girl. I, I prayed to God many a time that I was would just wake up and be the girl that I knew myself to be um and that things would be easier and you know all of this um but I think I started to internalize all the things that my peers were saying about me and mostly like uh, little boys right were like you're different, you know, you're, you're gay. You're just like a girl, like all of these things. And I was like, okay, well, gay seems like a label. So I guess that's it. Cause I, I'm attracted to boys. Like I, I had crushes on boys and I knew that that was a real thing. There wasn't a running away from it. Um, but I also knew it was something I couldn't express openly. And then I think around 14, that was when I was like, at the end of the line, I just, I could not go on without letting some of that pressure off. I knew that that was untraversed territory with my family. Because like, even though I was getting all of these messages outside of the home that, oh, you're very gay or a feminine or all these things in the home because they knew me no there nobody had like gaydar right because you know you don't look at younger folks the same way as like their peers look at them I think you know there's often this like with my dad it was like is that it's a phase like you'll grow out of it da, 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 da. and I was like okay so when did you grow out of your phase you know, which I which I was asking for a backslap with that. But <laughs> now, how much do you think femphobia plays into that idea that oh, it's a phase, you'll grow out of it? I think that that could be a piece of it, but you know, I think in some ways, even the tomboys that I witnessed growing up had these feelings of like, oh, well, you're young, but when you get older, you'll be the lady you're supposed to be, right? So I, I don't know, but I, I do definitely think that femphobia played a role in general acceptance. You know, it's so interesting. There's all this discussion about, particularly from the turfs, around socialization, right? But when I think about how I was growing up and the ways that I was often ostracized for my femininity and mostly by cis boys, but occasionally by cis girls too, that was a very different experience than the ways that like you could be a tomboy or a butch girl and navigate relatively unscathed you know so it's always interesting to me that there there are these guardrails put up around 
oppression based on gender because of the the sex you were assigned at birth because i it it, it ignores so much nuance i i i see a lot of that being an athlete mm-hmm. i see a lot of that um as far as this whole idea because i've i chalk up a lot of like the attacks on say tra on trans women in sport i chalk a lot of that up to this idea of it's this strange, weird, it's massage on one hand, but also it's a lot of femphobia on the other. You're not playing your role, but then if you're playing the role, quote unquote, you're not playing your role the right way. I mean, that that whole squish feeling of if you're too butch, then you're unauthentic. But if you're feminine the way we tell you that you need to be, you're inauthentic too. It's a tightrope. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a tightrope. And I... it. I do think the there there absolutely was femphobia. Um, I even if I was no no kind of um, queer in a sexuality sense, it would have been difficult <laughs> because you know our society um, often sees femininity just like you said, like as artifice. And masculinity is just as performative as femininity can be. It's not more. I mean, because oftentimes the most uh, artificial displays of masculinity lend itself to actually committing acts of violence and murder. So... Who is the, what's the bigger threat here? Let, let's, let's be clear. We, we talk about toxic masculinity a lot for a reason. It is literally th- lethal. There's a lot of people that walk around, but don't know where they're going. Mm-hmm. You were told by your father, a relatively early age, walk like you know where you're going. What would, and that point for you in some ways was transition. What was what was that period like when you finally realized, no, this is who I am. This is the path I need to go on. And you navigated that while a student at UGA, while a journalism student. And I know how Jay, we both know how Jay School can be. Mm-hmm. How much did that father's <laughs> wisdom, in a sense, power you? Yeah, well, you know, I don't really take that advice in the in in the sense of like it being rooted in what would eventually become my transition. I, I feel like the deeper value that I gleaned from that saying from my father um was really about conviction. You know, it, it, it's what do you know to be true at your core what do you what do you know to be the truth even if it is difficult and risky what is it and i think that that in in many ways having parents who pushed me to to think independently and not in like the Kanye West way or the Candace Owen way, because that's yeah. not independent thinking. Come on, it, it let's, isn't. Let's not even go there. It isn't. No, that's called pick me thinking. 
That's called pick pick me, Massa. Pick me. Yeah, I went there. Exactly. It's my no, podcast. Right. We can go there on that. You're right. But to really think independently, I was able to retain a sense of self. Um divorced from this kind kind of outside world of external expectations. So with the transition piece, I mean, in college, I was finally getting language around my experience. I mean, obviously, like, I was tangentially aware of what being trans meant prior to college, but that was where I met openly trans people for the first time. And and I remember not being phased at all by the fact that there were people who didn't identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth. I, I was not, literally not phased. You know how for some people, their identity understanding and formation is about resisting as much as possible you know oftentimes they're they're the bullies of people who are expressing what on some level they wish they could express i had the exact opposite experience i it was like it was like air like water or an element it just was it was like okay this makes sense and i think you know as i started to meet more and more people. I was taking gender studies courses. I was just learning more, trying to learn all the things that I had been locked out of in, you know, a Georgia public school education, (laughs) Um, which is coming up now more and more, the education system's failures. But yeah, I mean, that was... That was the awakening for me. So my gender transition ended up being almost like a second major because <laughs> literally my senior year, I I was trying to figure out the most strategic way to set myself up for whatever my career was going to be. It was, it was very practical in a lot of sense. So as I was preparing for graduating within that year, I was trying to get documents shifted over. I was trying to make sure like I was at the point medically where I wanted to be, you know, or where I could be. Um, and then I was also just trying to bring my family along for the ride But there was a bit of a, like, clock in my head that was like, if I don't have all my documents shifted over before I graduate, I'm really not going to be able to work and get a job. And I didn't didn't have any ideas about going, you know, back into the closet or just not being out as trans in my first job. But it ended up being that way because it felt like that was necessary at that point. I mean, the week that I went on my first job search, interviews and everything was the week that the George Zimmerman verdict came down. So having a flashback right now with this Kyle Rittenhouse situation. But also 
it was the week that Orange is a New Black premiered. So I so it's interesting to me because I am, you know, 30 and I think folks kind of collapse the the younger millennials experiences with the trans visibility era with like Gen Z. But like I literally came into my identity and who I am prior to the trans visibility moment at the very tail end. But there was no path really when I was in college. Do you ever look back and think, you know, eight years ago I was in Athens, now I'm here? Sometimes. Sometimes, you know, I have... I do have moments every now and then where I'm like, wow, what a journey it has been. Um, I mean, I dreamed of, you know, my dreams were very kind of, I just wanted to get out of Georgia for a long time. And, and I share that just to be transparent. I don't think that we should have to live that way. I don't, I don't think that we should have to have this feeling of like, we have to go so far away from home to find stability and community and all those different things. And I was lucky that I learned that before I did leave Georgia, because then I I found a new appreciation for Georgia when I got to Atlanta and met other Black trans people for the first time, really. And I actually started to see my Southerness in a different light. Um, I started to see that perspective as integral to who I am. I mean, I would not be who I am without the experience of growing up isolated in a medium-sized town in Georgia. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't have the same lens, I don't think. And so I I really appreciate my Southern roots in a different way now. You sound like someone else I know who is very proud Southerner. And it's a shame Beyonce. she's not with this right now. No, <laughs> I'm talking about Monica Roberts. Yes! Who... Who unfortunately now oh, is still with us, well, pretty much, but with us in spirit. For those who don't know, activist to activist, mm-hmm. and stalwart in the community especially, for people who may not know, how vital was Monica to the cause? Oh, Monica was so instrumental to this entire space that we are even in around dialogue around trans issues. I I really, and I, I adamantly believe that because she started her blog in 2006, Trans Griot, and she was, she almost exclusively covered, um, what was happening in the trans community. So her, her blog is really a living document, but a historical record of her experiences as a trans person from 
at least the 90s to beyond. And so there's so much history there just around how the trans movements that we we didn't, I don't think in a larger way even thought of as our own movements until recently, um, how they, they were kind of congealing into something, right? So, so Monica Roberts, was not just a blogger, was not just a journalist. I mean, she was a politico. I mean, she had an encyclopedic knowledge of local and state politics in Texas. I mean, even so much so that sometime within the months before she passed, um, I asked her if she ever thought about running for office. And she was open to it because she just, she had all the connections. She knew everyone um, locally in Houston. I mean, and she, she also just knew everyone nationally. So I, I have so much love for her. I wouldn't, I don't think I would have the career that I have. And I don't think many trans journalists would have the lens that we have around the fact that our voices and our stories are enough without being an addendum to someone else's story, some other movement story, without her. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm seeing the image of Monica, an elected Monica Roberts in Texas right now when all this mess was going on. I know. Oh, C-SPAN would have gotten a lot of ratings just for that. Okay, because she would have been saying "shut up, fool" every mm-hmm. <laughs> every single. She would have turned some things out. I want to shift gears to something light here as we're coming into the tail end of this because because there's something you told me about. I want to pick on. I want to pick at this a little bit. Fortnite, and Raquel Willis. Fortnite. You get you get your Fortnite on. I do. It's it's my like stress release. Um, yeah, I, I started playing during the um, pandemic. I played video games pretty heavy in high school, interestingly enough. But I, I never really thought of myself as a gamer, per se. Um, but I, I think a lot of the games that I... Well, I can't even say a lot of them have been stigmatized, but... Um, yeah, because when I was a kid, I mean, we had the first thing I ever played on, I was like three or four playing on like Super Nintendo, like the old school gray box um, with, you know, and then we had a Sega Genesis with the cartridges. Now that was my heyday because I had all the Sonics and we had Street Fighter and everything else. I have um, a Genesis that still works. Really? <laughs> I still got one. Oh I, my still, God. I still have one. I got my Sonic 1 and 2. That was a good console. Yes, it was. And that's the thing. Still works. You Still breathe on an, breathe on an Xbox wrong, got to go to the shop. <laughs> right. Breathe and on then, an i breathe on an iMac wrong. It's in the Genius Bar. Yeah, I still remember when I got my my uh, PlayStation. It was for my birthday, and it was so sweet because 
my dad and my brother have moved the TV into my room. So like it was the first thing I saw when I woke up was just the PlayStation was set up because we I didn't have a TV in my room yeah. prior to that. So it was just just for my birthday it was a special thing. And this was back when PlayStation had all those like demo CDs where you could play a bunch of you could test out a few different games. I think I played Crash Bandicoot or some <laughs> Crash Bandicoot. That's that's digging deep in the crates. It is. And and they actually just released, I think, the main trilogy on um Switch like a couple months ago. But so I played a little bit. But so that is a thing. I, we played Tekken. Like this was the first Tekkens. Um and then I had like a PlayStation 2. I played Grand Theft Auto interestingly enough like i loved that game i loved using like the cheat codes to get like tanks and different things <laughs> and then you know what I, once i no, hit you a college, gamer now no if you if you said cheat codes <laughs> no 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 you gamer, te- gamer tested gamer approved at that point <laughs> yeah and i and i did kingdom hearts i did get through that first kingdom hearts i need to go back and do the other ones but um, and then, and then, you know, once college hit, I just had to kind of put games away for a bit and this pandemic happened and I needed a release after all of this writing I've been doing on my book. And so I got a switch and fell in love with Fortnite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, that's one thing quickly about the book. How's that coming along? Is there a tentative release date? Yes. So it's coming along well. Um, Writing is very masochistic, and I've never written anything this big. So it's been a lot to get through the um, imposter syndrome, I think. But yes, I, um, I am actually nearing completion on the manuscripts in the next few weeks and tentatively late 2022. Now you just heard, now you just heard a word. I know, I know a great deal about cause I suffer from it too, but it blows my mind to hear you say that imposter syndrome and Raquel Willis in the same sentence. Oh yes. Oh, I'm absolutely in some ways frightened because there's, you know, it's just my innermost thoughts um, in in an expanded version. And I'm talking so much about movements and my experiences in them. And I think oftentimes people have gotten a kind of glossed over version of my experiences in movement. But there have been points of struggle for sure um points of doubt and and i'll be glad to get some of that just like out to clear the air so last thing to end it up Mm -hmm. because you're talking about the points of doubt and we've talked about the points of struggle we've talked about the backstory but there's one thing especially 
for myself is something I've been thinking about a lot. And I always ask this. Where is your point of trans joy? Where does it manifest for you? My point of trans joy. I feel like my point of trans joy is in my friendships with particularly other Black trans women. Um, you know, it's almost like being in a amazing version of, or more amazing version of waiting to exhale sometimes because we're just, you know, we're all just like leaning on each other going through our growing pains and our Saturn returns together. And, um, and it's interesting because it does feel like General generationally, we're having a different experience um, than maybe Black trans women have had before. I mean, what does it mean to be a 30-something? So it's still new to me to say that I'm in my 30s. A 30-something Black trans woman in this era, you know, where there's been visibility you know, there's so much more uh, acknowledged leadership than ever before. And yet we're in the crosshairs of like these like cultural and social battles. It's a weird time. I mean, it's a weird time. Um, but it feels like something great is on the horizon and we're trying to like i don't know get get things ready for the next generations to come up so so i feel good that's where my joy comes from it comes from my friendships with other black trans folks and it comes from my excitement for the generations who are coming up and to come and I have that excitement right along with you. Raquel Willis, it's been an honor. Thank, Thank you. you for being on the Transporter Room. And I'm just speaking from a personal standpoint. For me, this is when you said yes to this, for me, it was like, wow. It was uh -huh. like, yes. Yes, yes for me. Because in the same way, in many ways that it was when, when we had Monica on the show, People like Monica and yourself, they're the people I look to mm. because as I was going through my own process and struggling through the process, because you talk about what's it like being 30 something in this time. Imagine being late 40s and now 50 at this time. And this is all still new and you're still learning it and yeah. you're still trying to reconcile past, present and contemplate future your your wisdom and fire especially last year at the trans march was very inspiring not just to me to a lot of people so i'm just going to say you keep on keeping on and we're going to want you back of course you became a you became a friend of the show now so we're going to want you <laughs> back i'm going to okay. find you on fortnite okay we're going to do that hey we're going to hey i I can still pick up a. I, I've been I've been video gaming since the late seventies. We can do this. I love it. 
We I'm can down. do this. I'm going to beam you back to Brooklyn. Thank you. Have a beautiful, blessed holiday season. Like I said, we're going to want you back. Of course. Thank you for being on the Transporter Room. And thank you all for joining me on the Transporter Room this week. And just a reminder, if there's something you want to see or something you want to say about what we do here, leave a message on our Twitter page. Leave a message on our Facebook page. Or visit us at our Instagram presence, Transporter Room 10 Forward. Because remember, everything I do here at the Transporter Room, I do for all of you, the people who support us. That's the Transporter Room for this week. For all of you in this holiday season to come, a blessed holiday, no matter what you celebrate. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. Live long and prosper. Steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week.